Our first week in the book of Daniel, as he says, starts today. Now, it's a little different when we do a sermon series like this. Last week, we passed out workbooks uh, to our whole church, and it turns out we passed out 3,500. There were 3,500 people here last week, and so we got rid of all of them. We didn't mean to, so if you don't have one, you're not a Christian. No, I'm kidding. If you don't have one, uh, what the, we can't print anymore. It's too expensive, and so what we're going to do is you can get the PDF. Go to our website, thecrossingchurch.com, look for the PDF of the Daniel workbook, and you can either print that off, make a notebook out of it, or just do it on your iPad as a PDF or whatever. It's the best we can do, but what's fun is is that the church kind of all together is going through, you study that week, the passage that's going to, the chapter that's going to be the sermon that following Sunday, and then we come together and we talk about it. So if you want to do that, just try it. You know, try it for a couple weeks. If you like it, then you'll be glad you did it. If not, you can always stop at any time. Uh, but you never know when you look back over your life the key decisions that you make that you don't know are key decisions at the time. You're just making decisions and you're going through life. And then as you get older, you look back and you see, boy, that was, that was kind of a big deal. And I didn't realize how much that little thing right there affected in a chain reaction kind of way the rest of my life in a, in a bigger story. And I was reminded of that two weeks ago at my brother's son's wedding. I'm with this guy here named Gene Monez. We were able to sit together at the reception. You probably don't know Gene Monez. He's in, he lives in St. Louis. He's about seven years older than me. That's my brother's age. And uh, what's interesting is that Gene is, if you, humanly speaking, if it weren't for Gene, None of us would be here this morning. None of us. We would, this, this wouldn't be here, humanly speaking, if it wasn't for Gene. Let me tell you what I mean. When Gene was in high school, 1969, uh, at Parkway West, uh, he, he was a bad kid. These are his words. He was, grew up in a bad home and was a bad kid and had bad friends. And then something happened where he actually became a Christian like a sophomore year in high school. He became a Christian and he never looked back. He meant it, he understood what he did and he understood that that's who he wanted to be. But in making that decision, what, we, what he wasn't expecting was that he wouldn't have any friends because of it. Because see, the, the, the friends he had, the bad kid friends that he had, didn't want to be his friend anymore because he was a Christian. And other students didn't want to be his friend anymore because he had a bad reputation of being a bad kid. And so he was sort of caught in no man's land. And it was really starting to get to him one day, and he was in class, and a girl named Shelly Overton, fellow sophomore in the class, noticed and just saw that he was really sad and reached out and said, what's wrong, what's going on, you're not yourself. And he said, I, I, I don't want to go into it, you wouldn't get it. And she says, try me. And so he explained the whole thing about how he'd become a Christian, he's in no man's land and all that kind of stuff, and she just said back to him, I'll be your friend. And he said, what? And he goes, she goes, I'm going to be your friend. They never dated, so it wasn't that kind of a thing. Never got married, anything like that. I'll be your friend. And then my brother and sister were same age, same high school, and they had a party every New Year's Eve that they invited their high school friends to. Shelly Overton was my sister's best friend. And Shelly called my sister and said, hey, can you guys invite Gene Monez to the party? And my brother said, heck no, I'm not inviting Gene Monez to our party. He'll ruin the whole thing, forget it. And Shelly said, well, okay, here's the deal. If he can't come, then I'm not coming. Well, she's my sister's best friend. I think my brother had a crush on her. 
So that didn't take long before my brother said, okay, you can invite Jean Monez. So Shelly Overton invites Jean Monez, and Jean comes to the party, and that night at the party, Jean and my brother became forever best friends. I mean, like best of best friends. Here he is two weeks ago at my brother's son's wedding. And, and Jean was the best brother's best friend a younger brother could ever want. I mean, he was fantastic toward me. He included me in stuff. It was weird because I'm seven years younger and yet he'd come pick me up to take me to hang out with them and do stuff. And he was sort of wanting to just be the kind of guy that just lived in a way that loved people and included people. And you always felt loved and cared about that. You felt like a really important person when you were around Gene. And eventually my brother, because Gene was a Christian and he was that kind of a Christian, my brother became a Christian. And then a few years later, I became a Christian And I never looked back. 28 years later, my wife and I started The Crossing. And it's weird because I look back, and it's a bigger deal than you might think, that when I look at the chain of events that began, that chain of events began when Shelly Overton reached out to somebody who needed a friend. You don't know Shelly Overton. I have no idea where Shelly Overton is now. I don't even know anything about her right now. I just knew she was in our neighborhood and she was my sister's best friend. But in a way, she's the reason why we're all here too, humanly speaking. Because see, here's, it's God that works in these weird moments that we don't know are happening, but we're going through our lives and little things happen that is all part of this chain of events where God is building, behind the scenes, quietly working, silently there, always present, He's working to build a bigger story. And that's exactly what we see in this Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, the Old Testament book of Daniel is so amazing that people want to attack its authorship because as we will see when we get into it, some of its prophecies are absolutely incredible in their detail that happened later in in history. And so people want to say it's something, you know, that really isn't part of the ancient Hebrew scriptures and stuff like that. The problem is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, when we have all these copies of the ancient Hebrew scriptures, it's in it in the same spot it always has been. Here's another problem. When you read the New Testament and you read the teachings of Jesus, you discover that Jesus quotes Daniel, the book of Daniel, a lot of times. Significant quotes. One of them got, is the one that got him crucified. And when Jesus quotes Daniel, at least in one place, he cites Daniel as the one who said it. So Jesus saw Daniel as God's word, part of the Hebrew scriptures, and he saw Daniel as the one who's speaking when we read Daniel's words in Daniel. He had a super high view of the book, which is why he included it in his teaching so often, because he knew that the book of Daniel was an incredible picture of who he is, Jesus is. And here's the thing, it's an incredible picture of who you are. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at chapter one, verse one. It says, in the year, the third year, uh, in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So let me just tell you right now that with Babylonian records and, and Jewish records, we know that this is 605 B.C., so in 605 years before the birth of Jesus, actually 600-ish years before Jesus was born, about 5 BC, I know that, just let me not go into that, but it's about 600 years before Jesus. And so it says, in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem 
and besieged it. He sieged around it and made it in such a way that they, Jerusalem had to surrender. So it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, the, the temple Solomon built. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the temple treasure house of his God. Now, back then, when a conquering army came and conquered a nation, one of the very first things they would do is go to the temple of that people and plunder it and take the precious items back to the temple of their God and put it in their temple. Because see, back in those days, 605 BC, the sentiment of religion was this. The true, more powerful God was the God who was able to defeat the other gods by defeating their people. So here you have this incredible time that would be unbelievably confusing. If you were a, a Yahweh believer, if you believed in the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, and you were living in Judah, you would be so confused right now because it really would appear to you. I mean, it would, you, would, you just were raised with this instinct that the most powerful God wins in battles, and if he gets defeated in the battle, he's a lesser powerful God. And all of a sudden, the God who says, it's really interesting because, see, whereas we would say, well, you know, how could a loving God allow this to happen? Whereas what they would say back in those days is, how could a God who calls himself most powerful be defeated? And it would be a huge crisis of faith for you, a time of incre incredible confusion. You might even doubt the existence of Yahweh altogether. Here's what's interesting is that it says the Lord delivered not just Jehoiakim but the temple items to be taken into the temple of Babylon's God. Anytime you see something like that in the Bible, you know God's up to something. This is just the beginning of a little hijinks God has planned. God is up to something, but nobody knows that. This is all behind the scenes. They don't know the Lord delivered. And if you had a media back then, a media industry, a social media world back then, you know what the spin would be, right? How can people believe this God when he's just been defeated and has taken from the temple back to the Babylonian God's temple? The stuff, the physical stuff. I mean, it would be like now when you see pictures of a destroyed church or a statue of Jesus after a natural disaster or some kind of disaster of some kind. The message is clear and, and it's effective. Would your God allow this? Is that the God you believe in? But when you understand those words, the Lord delivered, all of a sudden you start advancing in your mind 600 years and you realize it's a very Jesus-y thing for God to do. The God who created the entire universe became a man under a foreign empire and allowed himself, submitted himself to be mocked and beaten and crucified. Imagine the confusion of the disciples when that happened. That's the confusion everybody in Judah has right now in 605 B.C., and that's the confusion that we read that Daniel and three of his friends are coming into in verse three. Let's take a moment and look at it here. It says, then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, it's kind of a cool name, 
chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family. So Daniel and his friends were from the line of David, at least part of the king's family, and the nobility. So it says, and this is a description of David and his friends, young men, and they're about high school age. If you understand, uh, scholars say, because the whole rest of the book of Daniel, Daniel's like 80 when he dies. These are, these are he, they're high school age now. So imagine being in high school and this is happening to you. They're young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Imagine that being a, a wanted ad. You know, you probably wouldn't, who would you get? But that's what, that's what they were searching for, and that's what Daniel and his friends were deemed to f- pass through the filter of to be part of Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so then it says, he was to teach, Ashpenaz, was to teach them, these high school guys, the language and literature of the Babylonians. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would be brought into the king's service. One more verse says, among those who were chosen were some of Judah, from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now I want you to notice in all these verses, I'm not gonna go in, I mean all these names, I'm not gonna go into it, but El is the Hebrew word for God, the God of the Hebrew scriptures, and Yah is short for Yahweh. So anytime you see a name that has El or Yah, Daniel, Daniel, God is my judge, Hani, Yah, God is, Yahweh is gracious, Mishael, uh, who, he is like God, uh, Azariah, I forget, what, oh, that means God is my help, Yahweh is my help. And so their names are completely tied to God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew scriptures. But notice it says, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now what you can guess, right? These are Babylonian names of the Babylonian gods. They have Babylonian gods tied to their names. It's interesting because, so they're brought in and they're learning the language of Babylon. They're learning the religious worldview of Babylon by learning the literature of Babylon. And now they're being given names that are the very identity of the Babylonian gods. That's what, Babylon always does. One of the first things Babylon does is get you to identify yourself with the cultural deities of your day. To get you to actually see your own identity in accordance with the cultural deities, whatever those idols of the culture are. And that's the first thing we see happening here with Daniel. It's always worth asking when you read something like that to stop and see, I guess I wonder if I got a blind spot. I wonder, I wonder if, there's, if, if, if there are cultural idols. Are there identities that in some way I've sort of slipped in and, and adopted as my own name, my own identity, that's a cultural idol more than really who I am? At, at least it's a good question to ask. But then something really strange happens. Because up to this point, Daniel doesn't, and his friends don't seem to be putting a lot of resistance. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of doing this stuff, and they don't seem to be resisting a whole lot. Now, we find out in the rest of the book of Daniel, they call each other their Hebrew names. But they don't mind being called the Babylonian names by the Babylonians. They're just fine with that. But then it's weird. Look at verse 5. It says, 
the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, the king's table is going to have very much the kind of food that's going to be tied to the gods of Babylon. And so verse 8, it says this. It says, but Daniel resolved. And I've got that in yellow because when you read it in Hebrew, it's like it says literally, but resolved, Daniel resolved. When, he, when the Bible wants to emphasize something, there's no underlining or, or italicizing or circling or anything like that. They would just repeat the word. So Daniel resolved, resolve. He didn't just resolve. He resolved, resolve. Not, this is really strong language, to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked, he goes to the chief official and asks for permission, he's a high school kid, not to defile himself, there's repetition of that, in this way. It's, it, it really is weird because, see, up until now, everything else, the language, the literature of the Babylons, learning about their you know, idolatrous legends and literature and all these kinds of things, just like if you went to the Israel, you'd learn the Hebrew scriptures. They're learning all that of Babylon. And they're even getting names of, with, tied with their God. And they didn't ask for permission to do anything. They just, okay, we'll go along with that. But all of a sudden... This is different. Because see, all those other things are just ideas. They're just words. But somehow to Daniel, we don't quite know why. We don't know if it was because it was violating the Old Testament food laws or whether it was food sacrificed to idols, but in some way, Daniel saw it as defiling himself. And the himself there has the idea of his body. See, up until now, it's just been ideas. But now, they're wanting to bring Babylon into his body. The gods of Babylon into his body. And Daniel resolved, resolved. Not to defile himself that way. So Daniel asked permission. Is there a way? See, here's the thing, is that we don't see our body this way. We kind of think of our body as sort of just an unimportant part of our faith. We think of our faith as our spiritual lives. We think of our connection with God as our spiritual nature. We connect with God with our spirit, our body not so much. But the Hebrew way of seeing the self, in fact, the very Hebrew word for soul that gets translated as soul in your English Bibles is a word that included the body. It, your body was part of your soul. Your body was part of who you are. The very essence of your connection with God involved your body. Either your disconnection with God or your connection with God would involve your body. So again, we have to ask ourselves a question. If, the, if there are gods of our culture, well, there are ideas and there are you know, things like that, but are there ways that maybe our, the gods of our culture are trying to get our body? And because we have this mindset that our connection with God is just spiritual, we don't have our guard up. We don't think it's a big deal. We sort of get seduced by the gods of Babylon bringing in, into our body. Not re I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about other ways that we might think are unimportant that our body is identifying with the gods of our culture that might be a bigger deal than we think. 
Daniel and his friends resolved, resolved not to defile themselves. So they ask for permission. They go to the guard and they say, hey, well, let's just see what it says. Verse nine, it says, now God had caused the official, the Ashpenaz, the one over them, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God had caused something to happen inside of the official when Daniel asked for permission not to have to eat the king's table's meat and wine, but he said, can we just have vegetables and water? And this guy said no. So it's kind of weird. God caused him to have compassion, and then he tells Daniel no. But if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll discover that he kind of puts somebody under him in charge of Daniel that Daniel goes to and talks to, and Daniel says, can we just do a test for 10 days? We just eat water and vegetables. You're gonna get judged whether or not we're strong like the other guys. If we turn out to be just as physically fit as the other guys after 10 days, then let us have the water and vegetables. If not, we'll do it your way. So after 10 days go by, and the chapter presents it as something God does, they are more strong, they're stronger than the others in the group, and so they're able to avoid the meat and the wine from the king's table. God worked in delivering over Jehoiakim and the temple items to the gods of Babylon, to Babylon, the Babylonian king. God gave the official compassion for Daniel, we're told. God caused him to have compassion. And then a third time in this chapter, we read in verse 17, it says, now these four young men, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. God gave. No doubt they learned, no doubt they worked hard at it, but at the end of the day, God delivered, God caused to have, and God gave. And what we find three times in this chapter is something where God is always silently in the background, but he's always at work. He's silently in the background, but he's always doing something to cause this bigger story to happen, this chain of events. So here's what the Bible's saying. Here's what I want you to get. The same God who created the universe and at that moment was with a star in some galaxy light years away that's exploding and God was right there in control of that star exploding and then back here, light years away in this galaxy, on this planet, on the kind of outer edge, God is right here giving Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. That God is infinite, and so there's nowhere in his universe that he is not 100% present and working, and behind the scenes we can't see him, but acting and bringing about this bigger story. That's what we see in this page. And it's amazing because what appears to be the assimilation of Daniel and his friends into Babylon ends up being God enabling, God giving Daniel and his friends the ability to assimilate Babylon, the knowledge and the understanding of all their literature into them for the service of God. And that's what they end up doing and you see in the rest of the book, it ends up being for Babylon's good. They are able to do that, and because of that, they're able to work for the good of Babylon. See, 
the entire rest of the Bible tells you that you're an exile in Babylon just like Daniel. This is not just some story about four guys in 605 BC. This is a story that is giving you a picture of who you are. Let me give you an example. When the Apostle Peter writes his letter to Christians, and by the time the Apostle Peter is writing this, in the earliest years, most Christians were all Jews, but then eventually a lot of, a lot of non-Jews become Christians throughout the, this, this, this kind of European part of the world and all over the world, India and all this kind of stuff, Africa, Northern Africa, and you have here him writing a letter, and he says this in the very first sentence of his letter, Peter says this, to God's elect, now he's using Old Testament terms for Israel, but he's applying it to these non-Jews. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now put yourself in the mind of these non-Jewish readers reading that very first sentence from Peter's letter and they go, huh? No, I've, I've lived in Galatia all my life. I'm not an exile scattered anywhere. I, this is actually the home my dad built. We've been here all of our lives. My, my brother lives down the street. My kids play with all their cousins. I'm not an exile anywhere. But Peter wants everybody who gets this letter to see themselves as exiles, just like Daniel and his friends who are taken off into Babylon. Wherever that may be, wherever they may live, they live in Babylon and they're exiles. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're in exile, and you live in Babylon. Now, you might think, well, no, America, America is not Babylon. You might think America is a Christian nation because that's kind of been said. Here's the thing. America is not a Christian nation because there is no such thing as a Christian nation. They don't exist. There is no such thing as a Christian nation Anywhere in the world, that's not how God's doing it. God is scattering his exiles into every nation. And so, like every nation, America is Babylon that has good things about it and it has bad things about it. And you're an exile in Babylon. But it's not just that. It's the entire Bible, from the very first part of the Bible to the very last part of the Bible, presents everybody, Christians and non-Christians, the entire human race as exiles in Babylon. The very third chapter of the Bible uses that very language. Humanity was created to spread this Eden throughout the earth, this presence of God, the beauty of God, the lush green, every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food, and the presence of God was supposed to spread throughout the earth, but Adam and Eve wanted to have their own wisdom and be their own God, and so the language that's used in verse 23 of Genesis 3 says that God exiled them out of Eden into the land of thorns and thistles and dust and death. And that's been the human condition. That's been the world's condition because Eden never got a chance to spread ever since. The Bible from the very beginning to the very end presents this narrative that we are humanity. The human condition is in exile in a Genesis 3 world in Genesis 3 bodies. It presents it like this, that, that exile is death. 
that you are a glorious ruin, that creation is a kind of glorious ruin in a Genesis 3 world in Genesis 3 bodies. That's the story of the Bible, thorns and thistles and dust and death, and that returning from exile, returning to the land, so to speak, is resurrection of the world and our bodies like Jesus' resurrection when Christ returns. Christ's resurrection was was the beginning of it. It's already in play. It's the start of a new creation. And so the narrative of the Bible is this, the story of the Bible is that we are in a Genesis 3 world, in Genesis 3 bodies, and we're awaiting the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Not when we die and go to heaven, but when heaven comes back to earth. And heaven and earth are the same again when Christ returns. And it's a resurrection of creation and it's a resurrection of the new humanity. That's the narrative of the entire Bible. And so what's interesting is, that means the earth is, it really is your home. I mean, it sounds good in a country song to say the earth is not my home, but the earth really is your home. You're not an exile in place, you're an exile in time. You're awaiting. The Bible calls this time, this age but we're awaiting the age to come when there'll be a resurrection of this Genesis 3 world and a resurrection of the Genesis 3 bodies of those who are in Christ. That's what J.R.L. Tolkien understood really well. J.R.L. Tolkien writes this. He says, certainly there was an Eden on this very happy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. See, when you want to know why you have these longings that nothing fulfills, you think you found it, you think it's this, and then it disappoints you, you think it's that relationship, and that relationship disappoints you, you think it's this new house, and that house disappoints you, you think it's this new job, and then it becomes nothing but troubles, and it always has this thing where you always think that Eden is the next right decision, the next opportunity, the next fountain you find in the ground, and it always disappoints. You're looking for Eden, but you can't get back there outside the story of the Bible. But you're always going to have those longings, and that means you're always going to have frustrated longings, and that means you're always going to have disappointments and a touch of anxiety and a touch of depression in life. That's the human condition. But when you can understand the story, he goes on to say, let me just read the rest of that. Okay, forget it. There it is. Our whole nature is still soaked with the sense of exile. When you can see exile in Babylon as the bigger story your life is in, that you're in exile, it helps you understand culture a lot better. The good things, the bad things about it. Helps you understand your identity a lot better. It helps you understand God's purpose for your life a lot better. It helps you understand what your whole life narrative and the story that your life is in and that you understand your identity and you remember your true name and you start to remember that you are an exile that's part of a story where Jesus has already begun the return by his own resurrection and it brings this sense of joy to your life. It brings this sense of meaning to your life. It brings this sense of courage to your life. It brings a calm confidence in the times of your anxiety. It brings this sense of hope even in the times of your depression. It has 
is this narrative that becomes the bigger narrative of your life, and it helps you not just for your own good, but to help you live for the good of Babylon. Amen.